and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. To that end, we have three central planks to our writing manifesto. One, to help you write more. Two, to help you write better. And three, to help you be a little bit happier as you do both these things. So today I'm at uh, the National Centre for Writing. I've got a room full of writers or a, a room full of people um, who write sometimes, whether they have fully uh, taken on the identity of a writer yet. Uh, I don't know. Some people shuffling uncomfortably when I uh, lay those laurels upon their head, but that's fine. Um, it, it, it doesn't need to be an identity. It can just be a thing you do sometimes. And we're going to look at some people's first pages and suggest some ways that they might make them a little bit better and also congratulate them and pat them on the back for some ways that they are already brilliant. Um, today, for those of you who uh, aren't aware, is the first day of NaNoWriMo. I, I love saying it like like the way my nan used to say Super Nintendo, like they were in a really uncomfortable way, like it's a piece of jargon that I, that I, I can't quite, you know, like I'm having to handle the word with oven gloves. NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month, the idea of which being that you attempt to write a novel in an entire month, but well, it's, 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 it's a novel in the in thousand words, which I think very few published novels are. Um, is anyone in this room... I don't mean to immediately out anyone, but is anyone this in this room attempting Nano Remo this month? One person at the back, everyone else. So I've got like some quite, I know lots of people kind of set off on it and it's kicking off your writing. I've got some quite strong feelings about Nano Remo and the things it does well and the things it does badly. But I think maybe as a way of starting off this evening, before I go into my long sermon where I talk about something and I kind of like start uh, jabbering at you. I thought we might jump straight into somebody's first page. So a few people have given me first pages to look at this evening. I'm going to spend maybe 15 minutes on each one and then I'll throw to you. If you've got any feedback, thoughts, then you're welcome to chuck those at me and we'll just look at them. So I think like the first page, I used to, I've edited over a hundred novels as a freelancer for people who wanted to get their novels up to the stage where they were ready to submit to agents so I think it's quite an it's quite an unusual thing to see novels not finished we don't really realize how skewed our model of what a work in progress actually looks like is because we almost always only see our own um, and most of the models we have in our head for what writing looks like is published stuff that has been through multiple grades of filter. It's been through an agent, it's been through an editor, it's been through a copy editor. And I'll tell you what, the copy editing phase of like doing a novel, the copy editors like make me look like such a better writer than I am. They like almost every sentence of the entire novel has got red lines through it, cut this word, this will make it more clear. They really just take my garbled mind spew and turn it into something approaching professional prose. And yet, when we sit down and we start writing, we, we look at our work and our, our main mental model for are we doing well is stuff that has had like a consultancy team working on it, has had hours, weeks, months poured into it. And we're constantly comparing, is this sentence that I am producing now basically improvising, is this as good 
as something that has had an entire professional crew putting days of work into it? And the answer is almost always no, at which point you might conclude, oh, I'm not a very good writer. That's not true. It's just that our way of looking at things is completely skewed by... So it's really good, I think, to look at people's first pages. And it's really good sometimes if you can see flaws in them, because then you realise... This is actually what it looks like. This is what writing looks like. It is mistakes. It is stuff that doesn't quite fit. It's words that clang. It's sentences that you go, you've repeated that word three times. It's stuff that you can't quite follow. It's it's so, so useful because then if when you're producing that, you don't start thinking something's gone wrong here. I'm going to come back to that in a sec because there's some stuff about like how we... I don't know whether any of you consider yourselves perfectionists, but there's some stuff to think about when it comes to scanning your work for errors. I'm a, we're about to go through three pages and look at what's wrong with them. And then I'm going to explain why. I think that's a really bad idea sometimes when you're writing. But um, we'll jump into the first one, I guess. Um, I don't guess. We're literally going to do that. Come on, Tim. You should, you should have some kind of commitment to what we're doing here. Um, so this one is... Um, called Grayling, and it's by William. I'm going to read it out. Um, I sometimes do do the voices, but I'm not an actor, so I'm going to do it in quite a flat effect. Grayling. I don't even know how... And also, this is the really really thing about doing this live, is I realise how many words I... Despite thinking of myself as a rather sort of like clever, erudite writer, I immediately encounter words that I have no idea how to pronounce, and I've only ever said in my head. Arnholt... Is that how that name is pronounced? Okay, here we go. Arnholt sat on the edge of the bed he used to share with his husband's uh, husband, elbows propped on his knees. The deafening silence beside him had kept him awake again. Moonlight coagulated in the tall, narrow window that faced the street and made his reflection look like a ghost. He ran his hands through coarse grey hair, feeling the bumps and gummy ridges of old scars on his scalp. The pain will stop eventually a small measure of relief. His bare feet pressed into the polished stone floor. He willed Garrett's arms to wrap round his waist and pull him back to bed, but they never came, only a phantom ache. He's dead, you fool. The words fell from his mouth like stones into a pond. You couldn't save him and he's dead and he's gone and he can't ever come back. He tested the feeling of the words and found they stung as sharp as ever, the wound still bleeding. Arnholt sat there on the edge of the bed he used to share with his husband with his head in his hands and he cried until the light outside the window warmed from grey to pink. When he ran out of tears, Arnholt rubbed at the marriage sigil tattooed into his left palm as if making sure it didn't come off, the last piece of him. I'll find them, my love. He kissed his palm. I'll find them and I'll make them pay. So... Now let's look at some things that we might... I realise that when there's like an emotive piece to like go, and now let's tear this apart. can seem rather cruel, but we have to be dispassionate like an evil surgeon when we're looking at our own work. Um, Not because readers come to stuff determined to hate it, but just because that's the best way we can make it better. And we don't have to identify with the work. We don't have to go, if I make a mistake, that means I'm a bad writer. This work is just a piece of work that somebody has produced at some time in a certain state at some point in their life. And it is malleable and it is changeable and it's corrigible and we can make it better. 
Arnholt sat on the edge of the bed he used to share with his husband, elbows propped on his knees. So, right, I think first lines are like, you can, you can definitely overdo a first sentence. You can definitely, I don't know if any of you have read Camus' Le Peste. I could have called, if I could have called it The Plague, couldn't I? But I called it Le Peste, as if I don't know if you've read Le Peste by Camus, as if to imply that I read it in the, in the French. I didn't. I read it in the English translation, but I said Le Peste to give myself like just a flicker where you doubted for a moment and thought, maybe Tim did read it in French. I didn't. But like there's a character in that who spends the entirety of the novel um, working on the first line of his own novel. He's got this idea. It's just about a guy seeing a black horse. That's the, it's not, there's no way that that first line is ever going to be very good. <laughs> but, um, but he spends the entire novel working on it on the basis that if he cracks that first line, the entire rest of the novel is going to flow out of him. And of course, by the end of the book, he still hasn't finished the first line. But occasionally the main character sees him and he's like, cha he's changed three words in it. And he's like, I've cracked it. I've got it finally. Um, Arnholt sat on the edge of the bed he used to share with his husband. Right, that, that is, is good, right? I think um, it, that clause is pretty decent. It's got only simple words. There's nothing fancy there at all. He sat on the edge of, of the bed. He didn't like repose or anything like that. I love like moody, um, evocative uh, verbs, but we don't need one particularly there. We don't need a big showy word. Bed is fine. We don't need to know that the bed was a certain type of bed. He used to share with his husband, right? If you full stop there, then we end with the most interesting piece of information, right? He used to share with his husband. So then we're like, oh, what, what happened? Like, we're and there's a promise there, right? We're assuming it's like, until they moved it to the guest bedroom and got a more comfortable bed. That would be like super disappointing if it was just like, he used to share this with his husband, but now they've got a lovely bed and it's just, and this is just an interior design narrative in a cozy magazine, right? There's an implicate, we're like, what's happened to his husband? Why do they not share the bed anymore? So that's a great, so it, I always think of this as like, it's the primacy recency effect we think of in sentences. The word order, the syntax, the way that you release information in a sentence is the whole art of it. Uh, and, and, and that might seem like a lot to think about when you're writing, but once you start to get this down, it's just an algorithm that runs in your head and you're always looking at your sentences going, are the most interesting words in this sentence the ones I start and end the sentence with? Primacy recency effect is basically this thing in cognition and memory that means we remember, we retain the things at the beginning and the things at the end of a sentence or a film or whatever, um, more than all the stuff in the mushy middle. So if you end with your most interesting word, with the most interesting, that's generally going to be a noun, I think, although not always. Sometimes it can be an adverbial clause. How about the opening line of uh, Dickens' A Christmas Carol? Marley was dead to begin with. And you're like, wait, <laughs> but surely people stay dead. This is, this, is, this is no ordinary Christmas Carol, Mr. Dickens. But like, it's a, it's a freaking awesome first line. It's, I mean, it's a little bit eyebrow raised, but it's cool, right? And also Dickens' like entire over it is, it's like a little bit like he's going, hey, hey. And he had to do that because he was putting stories out serialized in newspapers and he wanted to hook someone in. And it's an awesome first line. The, the, Marley was dead 
that's a pretty good first line, right? Okay, I don't really care about this Marley character, but he's dead, right? Okay, that's interesting. To begin with, it's like you go, hey, you're on notice about a certain type of story. So here, Arnold sat on the edge of the bed. Cool. Like he's just chilling out on the edge of his bed. That's fine. He used to share, and then we're like, and then your brain goes, whoa, with his husband, bang. We're in there, right? That's the most interesting part of a sentence is this caveat is this qualifying clause that changes our understanding and we've been given a named character right that's another thing this does really well it gives us a named character Arnholt we know from the first word in this sentence who our main character is that we're following through this bit it grounds us it's in the there's a narrative present established it's not giving us some general thing like the city had often been known as a place of I mean you can start like that but it starts in a moment in a specific environment, we're picturing a room, we're starting to expand out room, he used to share with his husband. And then comes the fatal comma. Elbows propped on his knees. I don't care! <laughs> like, what you, wait, one, it's not clear how to pass that sentence on a first go round. It's like he used to share it with, with his husband with his elbows propped on his knees. That's like, you know, like, so that's not... Why do we... So he only had his elbows propped to his knees. Now, of course, like a second pass, you go, oh, I see what you mean. He currently has his elbows propped on his knees. But like, who gives a, like, who gives a monkeys? Like, I'm not, I'm, I'm not being facetious. Elbows propped on his knees. Oh, I, I, I get that the tone here is not one of rapturous joy. When we get to say, he sat on the edge of his bed, he used to share with his husband. I go, well, probably he's cock a hoop. Probably if he's sitting on the edge of the bed and that's on his mind by, Im by implication, right? Because this is kind of like in third person limited. So what the narrative focuses on implies something about the character's state of mind. You don't need... Like, you could say Arnold sat on the edge of the bed, elbows propped on his knees. No, you couldn't, right? It, actually, you don't need that. But it's just... Like, it means that the noun we end this sentence with isn't husband, it's knees, like, I think with the best will in the world, we can't care about Arnold. And, and, and you understand, like, I'm being sort of facetious about this, but the reason I am is to hold this piece to a high standard because the actual dramatic, like, principle that this story is kicking off with is really good. Like, there is something really good in there. And then it's spoiled by someone going, Pruh. like, and it, I think that that is a, that's a, that's what I would think of as a kind of like narrative flinch. It's where someone's gone, oh, do, do the reader get, does the reader get that this person is dejected? I'd better just sketch in a little footnote and go, and his elbows are propped on his knees. Uh, and I just think that is, it's a hat on a hat, if you will. The deafening silence beside him had kept him awake again. No, I will not, you, I will not let, with such like a lovely understated first line, I will not let anyone have the deafening silence. That is a, a, a dreadful cliche. No shame on to write in a first draft, but when you come back to it for a second pass, you like explode it like it never existed. Also, silence doesn't exist. Silence is not a thing. I've never experienced silence. Maybe because I've got quite bad tinnitus for, from going to too many indie gigs in my early 20s. But like, it's actually rare to ever experience something that you would even consider being silence. What happens and what a better way to convey silence in your prose, I think, 
and feel free to disagree, is to describe finer and finer sounds. You know when people talk about like a pin drop, don't have that unless the person is a, a, a clumsy haberdasher. But like you can have, like if you have someone just kept awake all night by the by the subtle hum of like the air conditioning or the ceiling fan or the or like the buzz of like a light bulb or something we understand that that room is extremely extremely quiet and that their nerves are on edge and that they are not given to sleep silence is also an abstraction it's like going you know sound put put a line through that Imagine the absence of sound. I can't. You're just pointing towards a concept and that doesn't, that's not evocative. It doesn't, it doesn't grip any of our five senses, right? Like I think one of the things you can do that gets readers just feeling the story and experiencing it as the character does is give something that one of our senses kind of glom onto and we cannot glom onto silence. It's just a sort of abstract concept and, and there's a place for abstract concepts but you might as well say the deafening infinity beside him it's like yeah cool i understand what you want us to imagine but you that's your job to give us a sense of deafening silence not to just gesture towards the general concept and then move on like that's what fiction is is getting us to feel that horrible empty nothing that just noise that you can hear because you're thinking of someone and they're not there. Like absence is such a abstract thing and we experience it. Grief is such an abstract thing and we experience it in lots of shocking, mundane ways. And the deafening silence is manifestly not one of them. Um, had kept him awake again. Well, that's cool. Um, I kind of don't care. Like he, we can see he's awake. Actually, we could just cut that whole sentence. Moonlight coagulated in the tall, narrow window that faced the street and made his reflection look like a ghost. You guys can absolutely disagree with me. I feel like moonlight coagulating. I feel like it's borderline. It might be a little bit... But I like it, actually. I think that there's a bit of assonance there in moonlight coagulating. I think also, like, moonlight coagulating in terms of the cadence of that sounds like the thing it's describing. Like, that sentence actually slows down and pearls over on itself. And coagulating is a bit like blood, which is a nice thing to just kind of, like, get trigger something that is from a lexical set of murder and death. Like... That starts giving us subconscious tonal things. I, I, I don't want to sort of sound like I'm over, I'm being like literary fiction guy on this and going like, we can see anything in this. I like that. You are absolutely, I, I, if someone said to me, I think that is a dreadful piece of overwriting, I would say I disagree, but I would understand where you're coming from. Moonlight coagulated in the tall, narrow window. I think that, I think that actually the cadence of that line is really great. I like it a lot that faced the street and made his reflection look like a ghost, right? So is the moonlight making his reflection look like a ghost or is the window making his reflection look like a ghost? It's not clear to me which of those two, whether the object or the subject of that sentence, of that first clause is, and, and that might seem like you might go, well, who cares, Tim? Does it matter? Because it's like neither of, um, it just feels like a road bump that snags my head when I hit that. I'm like, do you mean the, how could the moonlight make his reflection look like a, oh no, I suppose, and it's kind of both. I also think, 
all reflections look a bit like a ghost. Like, that's not a great... It's not a great simile. Like, I was told by a really good friend of mine, you are allowed one simile or metaphor per page. And all the others, if you ever find that there's more than one, you just put them in the simile metaphor Thunderdome. They have a big fight. And whichever one is sort of standing over the others with a bloody chainsaw uh, and, and, and still alive at the end, that one is the one that gets to stay and all the others die. Now, that isn't true, and I haven't stuck by it because I'm an awful purple prose writer. But I think it's worth thinking about sometimes, if there was a fight between all the similes and metaphors on my page, would this one win? And I don't think made his reflection look like a ghost would would have a chance i think it would go down straight away i think it would i think it i think it would i think it would pass away from something thrown by the crowd it's an, it's a poor weak simile that adds nothing and all similes and metaphors by the way don't forget are going here's the story look away from the story a second here's an abstract thing that is not actually to do with the story but might give you a insight into what we're looking at here now look back Everyone draws away from the narrative present and the earlier you do it in the story, the more confusing it is for the reader. At the very least, you want to make sure that they're not clashing with each other. He ran his hands through coarse grey hair. He can't see... And I suppose he's looking in the mirror in the window, but then it's done in moonlight, so everything in that is going to look grey. He didn't... Right, he ran his hands through coarse hair, right? He doesn't know that his own... He can't feel that his hair's grey. So that's... a. a bit of a, I'd say if you're writing this in the third person limited, don't have him, don't have him feel, I can't feel the colour of my hair like that. I don't know why I tried as if I was going to go, oh no, that's fair enough actually. Um, feeling the bumps and gummy ridges of old scars on his scalp. Sort of? I'd say if the ridges are gummy, they're not that old. <laughs> like, like, that's, a, that's a pretty, that's a, see, see a doctor. That's like, if that's an old scar and it's still... You can still see, feel wet flesh. <laughs> like I, I think he may have been hit on the head more recently than he realizes. But um, that but feeling the bump, I, I like I like I, I like gummy ridges as a tactile thing. I can imagine that. I can feel that. That's exciting. One of our five senses. I like the idea of it. Um, you don't have to say his hair's grey when you're saying he's got loads of bumps and old scars on his scalp. I get it, right? Like, he's an older guy. You don't have to, like, go feel it through his grey hairs, coarsened by the passage of years. Like, you do, like we, we get it, right? Like, he's an older chap. That's fine. Um, you don't need to repeatedly tell us the same thing. But I, but I like that there's a bit of tactile stuff here, because we've had some implied sound or we would have if we took out the deafening silence we've had some visuals and now we're getting something tactile that's freaking fantastic actually that's three in three sentences we've had three senses that's um a really good practice i reckon the pain will stop eventually no don't don't say that i mean i know like we're going to something like it sounds like i'm being i'm not mocking it but i just think that is too emo like, it, you're going to show, don't tell, if, if you will. That's a phrase I just came up with, right? Show, don't tell. But, like, that is a moment of not trusting your own writing. That is a moment of not understanding that your story has already delivered that and just stepping into, like, um, what was it Henry Green said? Um, the uh, author should not intrude like a Greek chorus to underline their meaning. Uh, and and, and it's, it is, it's like stepping in going, hey, 
this guy's in pain in case it's like someone reading the book over your shoulder and it's like someone it's like watching batman begins and someone nudging you and going that's batman <laughs> and you go i know i'm watching it let or if i didn't figure it out let me let me enjoy let me make my own deductions here right and that's what we do when we don't trust the reader and when we and fundamentally when we don't realize how good we are as authors is we crap up our own writing by stepping in to explain a small measure of relief. No, no, this, it's too early. And these are abstractions. I, I just, I, I would just like, if you think, if, I don't know what you think here, but like those just, I don't know, they just, they excite me less. They are entirely dealing in abstract conceptions of emotion rather than stuff in the narrative present in the physical room. And I think for that reason, they're just a bit boring. They feel like fluff. Um, and you can cut them. That's the beauty of a lot of these criticisms is you can just cut the line. There's no additional stuff you have to add and it just, it just has more punch. And then here we go. His bare feet pressed into the polished stone floor. Now, I kind of, again, this is, could be, this is tactile. Like polished stone floor? I'm just, I'm not sure. I feel like that is a tiny bit telling rather than showing because what we actually, he would feel experiencing the, the soles of his feet is that it is smooth and that it is cold or something to that effect. And that would be the only tweak I'd suggest there is just to really make it, otherwise you're just saying, okay, he's having some sensory stuff and he is experienced and he knows that it's a polished stone floor, right? So you're kind of telling us that's kind of the reader's benefit. Whereas it's like if he like rocks his feet from heel to toe on the smooth, cold flaggings or something like that, you know, then then we can get then I, then we can get that we get the same information, but it is delivered through his perspective. He willed Garrett's arms to wrap around his waist and pull him back to bed, but they never came. Only a phantom ache. I don't think only a phantom ache is a good way to finish that. I think that is, again, it's like someone panicking and keeping going with the sentence, hoping that someone's going to tap them on the shoulder and relieve them and go, it's okay, you're allowed to stop. Because he willed Garrett's arms to wrap around his waist and pull him back to bed, but they never came. That's right. So you don't need the pain will stop eventually a small measure of relief. If you cut those two out, then I think that line is actually quite poignant. And it's simple. We understand, actually brilliantly, he hasn't had to say, Garrett, the man who had been his husband. Like, we know, right? Like, actually, contextually, there's not, not a single person read that and didn't know that Garrett was his husband. Um, unless you are, like, fully, like, playing six-dimensional chess here and going, who's Garrett now? The, the intrigue continues. He, what a saucy devil. We understand that's his husband, right? And that's really cool. And that's actually very elegant um, economical writing. So that's what I would suggest there is just, but they never came. Stop. He's dead, you fool. <laughs> Nobody. I, well, maybe someone in the depths of despair would say that. But um, it, it does feel a little bit like they call this in the Turkey City Writers Lexicon a, um, what is it called? It's called, a, 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 I think it's called a message from Frank or something like that. But it's where one of your, where, the, where your characters, if I say this, this doesn't make any sense. It's one of your characters, it's your subconscious 
talking to you. I think it's called a message from Fred, signal from Fred. He's dead, you fool. I just don't think anyone would say that out loud. This isn't a Beckett monologue. Like, there's no audience there. You can have characters think stuff and not aspirate, not say the words out loud because it's not TV. They don't have to say it because this is the beauty of prose, right? Maybe some of you think, well, he would say it out loud. He's testing the emptiness of the room and stuff like that. The words fell from his mouth like stones into a pond. No, they didn't. Um, I, I, like, I, I think the words fell from his mouth, full stop. I'm kind of okay with that, actually. If you want him to say it out loud, and then you want to hang a lampshade on it to go, I know it's weird that he's speaking out loud, but it, like, grief does weird things to you. That's true, right? That's fine. Um, like stones into a pond. Because the problem with that simile, apart from it not especially evoking anything that the words didn't already... It's not like you have to go, by the way, this is a pretty sad moment. Like, you don't need to step in. Your, your prose and the dialogue choices have already done that. But then, unfortunately, it puts the next sentence into a slightly weird context. Because it goes, the words fell from his mouth like stones into a pond. You couldn't save him and he's dead and he's gone and he can't ever come back. That's a hell of a lot of stones. Like, that's like, suddenly it's like, that's, that's like... That's like someone's tit, like a, a dumper truck has just like poured gravel into the pond. It's just a weird way to set up. And also, it's like he's conveniently giving us quite a lot of exposition that we don't need at this stage. You couldn't save him. Like, I understand he's feeling regret and I just don't want the character to step in there and go, you couldn't save him. Not then, when he was run when he was spitted on his own sword at the battle of like it's too much i just think it's too much and he can't ever come back right and i understand this character is is almost kind of like verbally self-harming he's like it's this moment of real anguish but i think it's too much i just think he's dead you fool the words fell from his mouth stop he tested their feeling and found they stung as sharp as ever Right, because that also implies that he said this exact sentence to him mul himself multiple times, and that is a pretty like gnarly sentence to repeat multiple times. I just think it's too obviously we're experienced readers. We understand that that is exposition for us, not something that somebody would say. He's dead, you fool. The words fell from his mouth. I don't really particularly like the wound still bleeding. I like. I know he's sad. You don't have to sort of like lay it on with these metaphors Arnold sat there on the edge of the bed he used to share with his husband with his head in his hands and he cried until the light outside the window warmed from gray to pink i quite like the repetition actually there I, I i feel like it makes it feel like a kind of like habitual time i also just think the cadence of that sentence is quite nice um i don't feel like i need with his head in his hands again i just feel Arnold sat there on the edge of the bed he used to share with his husband and he cried until the light outside the window warmed from grey to pink. That's like a pretty lonely sentence. That does a lot. Um, when he ran out of tears, that never, that's not a thing. So don't, don't write that, right? That's, that's not a thing. That is a cliche that you've imported from other people's writing. Try and do it from the inside out of the character, not what we think writing is. Um, just... He rubbed at the marriage sigil tattooed on into his left palm. At this point, like any reader who was not sure of what genre we're in, as like just like spit take coffee or like their little monocle has popped out. They've got a marriage sigil. This is, this is, this is fantasy, right? Like it's, and, and 
I actually think that's fine. And actually, we would have all sorts of clues to know what genre this was before we encountered it in a book, right? So we'd know. And it's kind of cool. Like, actually, I think it's a piece of world, world building. That's awesome. Marriage sigil sounds awesome. Unless people are going to say everyone has a marriage sigil, Tim, you, with your reading ring. We've all got sigils. Um, but it's cool. I like that a lot, as if making sure it didn't come off. No, just say he rubbed at the marriage sigil tattooed into his left palm. Let us make inferences about what he's doing, right? You don't have to, like, go as if having, as if experiencing some more grief. Like, we know, we know, you've done the work already. Your writing is good enough. Like, a marriage sigil is a frigging cool thing. And I love words that are just interesting and just grit in the brain. That's a cool bit. The last piece of him. We know! Just cut that, right? Because, like, when you strip all that away, this is really good. I'll find them, my love. So I can almost actually, almost knowing that this is fantasy, makes it, and I'm a fantasy writer, so I'm not, I'm not like ragging on fantasy. I feel it makes me accept that slightly corny piece of dialogue slightly more because um, it's kind of, I get it, right? This is like a little promise of what the quest is going to be, right? So I'm like, okay, he kissed his palm. I'll find them and I'll make them pay. I quite like that. It puts us on notice. This is going to be like a little adventure, a bit of a yarn. Also, it's a little bit of a relief because at the moment, it's just been a pretty harrowing scene of like a, a widower sitting on the edge of his bed in unabating grief. So him going, actually, I'm going to go and kick someone's ass. Like, they're like, we're like, there's, there's a moment of like, actually some of that weight lifting, right? We're like, cool. Okay, do it. Um, so overall, like that's all I'd say. Like, I think for this, like there's loads of bits that just need to be cut down. And what's left is actually something that's got a little bit of punch. You know, it's definitely within the kind of classic end of the genre. But I think there's like there's there's something there, you know, there's a scene that I really like. Now, I'm just going to throw out, is anyone got any, it's okay if you don't, but it's okay if you do. Anything you wanted to say, any feedback or anything you want to point out about any of the sentences, any points that I've brought up that you disagree with, anything else you wanted to add? Yes. Uh, the bit where he says the pain will stop eventually. Um, so I'd like, I thought that contrasted nicely with the guy that we're really hammered in, the guy's old. So you're kind of like, well, how long? Presumably years to get over the pain of losing your partner. And then it's kind of, so it's kind of like, does this guy actually have that time? Or is he going to be in pain until he dies? And then if it's less, if it's not years and years, if it's months and weeks, whatever, is he going to stop being in pain before he gets his revenge? Before he accomplishes his goal? And I thought the revenge plot mirrored nicely with the sunrise. Kind of like, here is something coming up. Yeah, yeah, no, I really, that's really great. So like, the pain will stop eventually is like, he's kind of like, so he's like, so you're almost like saying that that has a nice bit because it's like going, this, that sets a timer on this quest, yeah, right? Exactly. It's like, going, if you don't like go and kick someone's ass now, like you, you've missed your window of opportunity. Yeah, I, I kind of, yeah, okay, that's, that's cool. I suppose, um, yeah. I, I mean, I kind of feel like that's implied, but like, yeah, it may be, yeah, I can see like you could use that just to uh, punch it up a little bit. Anyone else? Any other thoughts? Yeah. I really struggle with this name, Armfold, because it's got this thing that trips you up in the middle of it. I just read that first, Armfold, and I get stuck at Armfold, you know, and it's like, 
And we, I sort of think, I'm not reading this book, because every three sentences I've got to say, <laughs> I mean, for, for fantasy, Arnholt, you've got it pretty easy. They'll start breaking out the apostrophes fairly soon, and then you'll be like, why? No, I know what you mean, um, that certain names can be... Yeah, I, it, it's, it, yeah, and it's difficult to know, like, whether you get three pages in and you just don't notice it anymore, or whether... Because I don't, like, want the main character to be called Dave, either. Like, I would, I'd be able, but I'd just be like... Not, nothing wrong with being called Dave, but who's like Dave sat on the edge of the bed. Oh, it, like it doesn't sound like he's about to go on an epic adventure. Arnhold, yeah, I get what you mean. Like it's definitely something. It's it's got two a, a mellifluousness to it. It's definitely got two long, um, lo- two long syllables next to each other, two stresses, and that is, uh, it's, it's, yes, I, I, I know exactly what you mean. Um, cool. Any other thoughts? Yes. Um, I kind of felt, look like a ghost. I didn't like that simile because it's, um, there's a lot of stuff that's in the semantic field, like words relating to, um, like, death and deadness being dead um like coagulated and scars and the fact his husband is literally dead um and i just felt like uh, like a ghost is very on the nose and i also felt like if you're in fantasy like in it's kind of like you're then introducing okay so ghosts are here are they in the same way that they're like is he are there ghosts literally in this world is it like a made-up thing in this world is he it, it kind of gets a bit fuzzy yeah we don't know whether you're establishing ghosts as a reality and also it's yeah it made his reflection look like a ghost like his husband was because yeah. he was dead <laughs> but dead in a in a sort of like unhappy way where he might come back it's like yeah yeah exactly it is, it is really really on the nose it made his reflection look like corpse that have been stabbed in a treacherous double yeah yeah exactly i know what you mean yeah it's tricky and I, i'm sure that wasn't the intention but you just do these things and then it just yeah it seems a bit a bit, a bit on the nose cool it, it, should we move on to the next one well i'm going to anyway um here um this one's untitled um and it's by jane Parts of the city were still ablaze after a second night of incendiarism and riot. Once the morning rush had died down, Martin sent Joe to the market to see if there was truth in the rumour that the under-sheriff was enlisting a thousand special constables at the Guildhall gibbet. Not that Martin was planning on volunteering, unless the rioters turned aside from breaking the poorhouse's looms and started breaking the celery's ale barrows, barrels, he had no grievance against them. Anger and disaffection raise a powerful thirst, and trade had never been so good. Hannah had her own reasons for eagerly awaiting Joe's return. As soon as he slipped through the door into the scullery, on a blast of icy air, she wiped her wet hands on her apron and grabbed his arm. Did you walk to Westminster for the news? You've been an age. Was she there? Joe scowled. Martin's waiting for news. If he's angry, I won't get my penny. Hannah conceded the truth of this and released her grip on his arm. Run and tell him then, but come back here if he wants to send you straight out again. He don't need you to tell him what's afoot. Men have been coming in full of tales all morning. And make sure you remind him about the penny he's been drinking so he's apt to forget. Joe grinned. I could say he promised me tuppence. Do that if you want to swap your penny for a thrashing. He's drunk, not stupid. Okay, so I'll give some thoughts and then if you've got any you can add them. 
Parts of the city were still ablaze after a second night of incendiarism and riot. So, I, I, you know, I consider myself like a reasonably intelligent person, but I do struggle with the word incendiarism. I, I like it. I just found it like tough in a first sentence. I feel like I want to be like eased into a world a little bit more before I'm having to deal with a word I literally don't think I've ever encountered before. Um, but um, parts of the city were still ablaze. So we're, I think part, I just, I, that's, I can't picture that. Now, I, I, I know what it means. I understand what it means. But I would rather, it's, it's kind of like a general sort of state, right? It's giving us a condition. It's like going, it, it's like a weather forecast. And actually, maybe for me, I would rather there be a, a specific thing, right? If this is by implication in London or in part of London, I'd rather like some landmark or some specific thing that the characters know habitually is still burning or smoke is still rising from the um, church steeple or whatever, whatever is burning. I'd rather pick one specific thing and give us that rather than this abstract parts of the city were still ablaze after a second. Because I get it. I understand it. I can read that sentence and parse it. But it doesn't give anything for my mind's eye to picture in the same way that a single burning thing does that stands in for the whole. You know, like a little a little bit of sort of like visual synodoki could go a long way. And I just think riot is, again, it's a cool word to end a sentence on. It is a bit of a general concept, right? Like riot is just a state we're not seeing a thing. And there are no characters in this first sentence. Now, the the, uh, the extract is about to remedy that um, and, and perhaps go slightly overboard on that. But I just feel like what we've been given is a sort of condition. It's, it, I mean, this is basically, it was a dark and stormy night. Now, I actually like Edward Butler Lighton's first line, it was a dark and stormy night. I think that's actually a cool first line. Um, it's become mocked and derided, but I think it's a, it's a dark and stormy night. That's like, it sounds good. Okay, cool. It's night, right? Cool. That's awesome. I've got no problem with that. But I think the only problem with that is we like to have a character. We like to know what we're following. Or if you're going to give us a place, something very specific that in engages our senses needs to be happening. I think this is just, the focus of this is too wide. Once the morning rush had died down, I don't know what the morning rush is. I don't have enough detail about the city. I don't know what era this is in. The morning rush could mean commuters. It could mean morning rush of rioters. What, what is the morning rush? We got, we got no context for that. So we just, we kind of understand it as a piece of data, but it's not engaging us. There's no immersion. Martin sent Joe, oh, two, two names here. Martin sent Joe to the market see, to see if there was truth in the rumour that the undersheriff, oh, so now there's three people. I feel like, I just feel like I'm on stage and someone has just like started throwing me chainsaws to juggle. 
I'm like, sorry, I'm a Martin sent Joe hanging on to the market. So there's now a Martin Joe, a location to see if there was truth in the rumor. Now there's this abstract rumor. So the market Joe, there's going, which one's going to the market to see Joe to the undersheriff, three characters, oh my God, and everything. And it's a monkey and a peas situation. Was enlisting a thousand special constables at the Guildhall Chibit. It's just a lot, right? It's like what we need, like, is like, if Joe is walking, if the opening line is like Joe walked through like the early morning air, um, the smell of, you know, wood smoke still in the air, the steeple still ablaze or something like that. We start with Joe. Then I've gone, OK, Joe is my like anchor character in this scene. You know, Martin had sent him to go and find out about you know, and, and just pay out the information a little bit, because especially like remember like when we hit like a new uh story this world is uh, coming ex nihilo there's like a void in front of the reader right just a blackness and then pow words appear in it and we immediately start like filling out the space around them we are filling stuff in by implication all the time and we're looking for what is salient to do that and if you hit us with too many proper nouns early on it, it, it's just like the reader with the best will in the world. We don't know anything about Joe. We don't know who Martin is. We don't know. I mean, like, Under Sheriff is frigging cool, right? That's the first moment where I've got something that is actually a proper noun that gives me, like, a locate. It starts, like, narrowing down genre and time a little bit. I like Under Sheriff, right? I, I glommed onto that. Um, but I don't know what... I just feel... I just... I feel like I've I've just woken up to the sound of like the Bombay doors opening and I'm dropping out of a plane and I'm wearing a pair of skis and I'm like, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? <sighs> sorry, sorry, the hand on a piece of paper. Martin, Joe, I'm an under shit. I don't know what's going on. And, it, and it's like, and obviously that is just how I experience life in general um, because I'm a very highly strong person. But I think you've got to be careful how you pay out. And you, it might sound like I'm being very... Um, unambitious here. I'm not saying readers are stupid. On the contrary, readers are really intelligent and everything you throw to them, they will try to make a story out of. So you've got to be quite sparing or controlled in how you release that information so that they can do it in a coherent way and they know who's important. Like Martin is like, may become important later on. At the moment, he's just kind of like this antagonist kind of like bad boss stroke kind of uh, person this person's apprentice to or whatever. Um, but we don't know who's important. We, don't really, we can't really parse that until later we start finding out about this. And, and then we get Guildhall gibbet and I'm like, okay, like, okay, now I'm starting to get some like nouns that start anchoring this in a place. Um, but first I want people and first I want some senses. Not that Martin was planning on volunteering. Back to Martin again. Well, I lost Joe in this. Unless the writers turned aside from breaking the poor houses' looms and started... So that's, in, that's interesting. That might be slightly too much exposition. It's like it does feel a little bit like someone's like taking my hand and kind of spoon-feeding me slightly. I'm not sure that the character... You know, it, it, it's a bit like someone in a Second World War novel kind of like going, well, if uh, if the Nazis led by Mr. Adolf Hitler started coming over and making war 
on England because they wanted to win. Like it's like there's too much there's too much there that feels a bit like the way that characters react to um news in episodes of Quantum Leap where they're always start going or like in Poirot, right? Where you have like a character start going, You you mark my words, Herr Hitler will never invade the Sudetenland. And we go, We're not supposed to think that character's very intelligent because we know he does. And it's like <laughs> but can, no one really speaks like that in the time. And actually if you read stuff from eras, they they're often not concerned with the things that we know they should have had their eye on because they've got their own stuff to deal with. Now I know there's riots going on, so obviously he's not gonna not notice them, but he, do, he doesn't need to, in his own thoughts, explain what's going on. That's not important. I want to know who Joe is and where he's going and what he, how he feels this morning. Started breaking the celery's ale barrows. He had no grievance against them. Anger and disaffection raise a powerful thirst and trade had never been so good. That is a cool ending line, right? I'm like, okay, we've got a bit of attitude about who this character is. It's quite, it's quite witty. Like I'm, and it's, it's just a well-constructed line. I, I know, again, you might think, well, Tim, I thought you said abstractions are bad and you want us to... But it, once, you've, once you've anchored us in a place, you can have like a little bit of character thought there. And that, um, that's the first time I feel like I get a sense of Joe, although I couldn't have, if you put a gun to my head, have told you that it was Joe who thought that because I've had three, four... Have I had a Hannah in that bit already? Yeah, uh, no, I've had three. Martin, Joe and the undersheriff. I probably wouldn't have been able to tell you that was Joe yet. Hannah had her own reasons. Oh my God, another character coming in for eagerly awaiting Joe's return. So we've switched perspectives. Now we're going, let's leave Joe now. We, 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 we know who Joe is. Let's move across town to Hannah to see what, what... I wonder what Hannah's doing at the moment. Let me just... Now I've whetted your appetite with Joe... Let's just leave him and switch to perspective two. No, just hold up here. Like, I, I don't... Hannah may have lots of reasons, but Hannah can wait her bloody turn because, <laughs> because I want to know about Joe. Um, so we've switched perspective. Um, you can do that if you want. You can have an omniscient narrator. I'm not here to tell you to take away your lovely toys, but... Third person limited is generally more satisfying to the reader and makes us feel slightly less um, like we're some kind of like alien brain parasite jumping between consciousnesses with no control over it. Um, as soon as he slipped through the door into the scullery on a blast of icy air, tried to like as soon as he slipped through the door into the scullery on a blast of icy air, there's lots of like qualifiers there that make that sentence feel like it's a bit kind of coming out and coming out and coming out. She wiped her wet hands on her apron, and grabbed his arm. Like, it's not a bad sentence, and actually a lot of those are single-syllable words, but I do feel a little bit like I'm being getting like a hundred-foot kick to the face there of like, da, 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 of all these different bits of thing, and I could have done with that being split in two. I think we wouldn't have lost any of the semantics of that at all. Did you walk to Westminster for the news? You've been an age. Was she there? So there's like an extra person now that I didn't even really notice. There was a pronoun there alluding to someone else because there's so many people here. Um, but I would say like, I'm getting a place and when you go, did you walk to Westminster for the news? That's immediately like, okay, I'm London, right, cool. That's actually really helpful. It doesn't feel like an unrealistic piece of dialogue. And now we're in a location that's really helpful for me as a reader. That's gr I, I think that actual dialogue is, is great. 
and it, it does a lot and it's unshowy and I know it's Hannah there's no silly dialogue tag loads of that is brilliant I don't, I don't want to make it sound like I'm just kind of like ragging on this because I'm not Joe scowled Martin's waiting for news if he's angry I won't get my penny um I I I I, I like I quite like that I I I I quite like that I I feel like maybe there's a like a bit of extra flavor there it feels like if he's angry I, I just it just the character feels like he's I wonder if there's like some particular way he'd have a phrasing it or something or something a bit more evocative than angry but I quite like that you know I I feel like I now this dialogue is happening in a narrative present between just two characters I feel like I understand what's going on a bit more Hannah conceded the truth of this come on she's not she's she's not she's not a reverend in a like a George Eliot like uh, novel she didn't concede the truth of this she's like she doesn't she doesn't wouldn't use those words so don't suddenly go into this high register or like she went all right she was like she realized he wasn't lying that's what like that's how I would do it if that's enough register for me it's enough for Hannah Hannah really if Hannah releases the grip on his arm we understand that she's conceded the truth of it right like just show us the action run and tell him then but come back here, even if he wants to send you straight out again. He don't need you to tell him what's afoot. Men have been coming in full of tales all morning. I quite like that as a piece of dialogue. I think, like, I'm, I'm, I'm into this now a bit more. Um, and make sure you remind him about the penny. He's been drinking, so he's apt to forget. Right, that's a little bit of information about Martin. Now I understand who Martin is. He's an asshole that neither of these characters like. Actually, I didn't need to know that Martin existed up until he says, Martin's waiting for news. See, so Martin can be introduced in that piece of dialogue. We don't need, we don't go, he doesn't go, Martin's waiting for news. And we go, well, you haven't told me about Martin. I've only been preparing for two characters. You mean other humans exist in this world? Start the story again. And this time, warn me that there'll be a Martin. It's fine. We can cope with the existence of other characters. And it feels much more, I think, but I like this now. This dialogue, I think, is, is actually great. It's unshowy, but I believe in it, right? Joe grinned. Matt. Joe scowled. I can... Okay. You can't have Joe scowled and then Joe grinned. Joe dialogue tagged. Like, it's just no. Like, you can't do it twice. Otherwise, Joe just becomes, like, <laughs> drama masks boy. Right? Like, it's just like, it, you don't need it. Just just because if you cut it, I could say he promised me tuppence. I, I, we're not going to be like, who said... Where from whence did this strange disembodied voice? We know it's, it's Joe, right? There's two characters in dialogue. It's fine. You don't have to overdo it. Do that if you want to swap your penny for a thrashing. He's drunk, not stupid, right? And there's a little bit of conflict, a little bit of threat. And I get a bit more sense of you actually given me quite a good sense of who, who Martin is without him being in the scene. So overall, I think there's some really great stuff there. You know, I was, you know, I'm joking about stuff because it's all stuff I do as well in my first drafts as well. I'm not suggesting this is something I'm above. But I just think sometimes you write your way into a scene. And what we need is stuff anchored in the narrative present by a character and through specifics, not general cases. Anybody else got any thoughts about this they want to add? Yeah. See, I enjoyed this more than you did, I think. I, I, quite, I think I quite, enjoy, I, I quite, I think I quite enjoyed it. I, I wasn't, I, I, I definitely, if I gave the impression I didn't enjoy it, um, then I have done a poor job of conveying my feelings because I do like it. I'm just, um, I think it takes a while to hit its stride. I liked about it, maybe the things that you 
said that there's not too much going on at the beginning, but actually that, for me, raised lots of questions that I had, so it's like I'm thrown into it, it's like trying to catch a moving vehicle and you jump on, and that's quite thrilling. I think you could do that well. You're much more daring than me. <laughs> Whereas, like, maybe the previous piece, I was kind of unmoved by a man sitting on the bed, but here I've got, like, got people that I might be interested in. There's a city on fire. There's, I've got questions, and that makes me... So, I think that's great. Starting stuff in media res is a really good thing. Like, it, look, if, the, if it started, the city was still on fire, that's a pretty chill opening line, and I'd be okay with that. But that is a long... Parts of the city were still ablaze after a second night of incendiarism and riot. It sounds like a sort of 1908, like, American reporter breathlessly kind of like... Yeah, it's a bit... It is a bit pathé news. And actually... But I... No, it's a really good point you make, right? That parts of the... So... And also, it's like that qualification. Parts of the city were still ablaze. It's not like you're going to put the city was still ablaze. And someone's going, um... What? Literally the whole, like every square, right? Like the the vicar's eyebrows were on fire. Oh, that's stupid. Like we don't have to. It, I think it's been qualified to death. And I agree with you. And I think that's a really good point that it can start with that. But I just think the way parts of the city is just an unnecessary. The city was still on fire. Would be a cool opening line. Or or again, anchoring it in a specific. I, I, I agree. I actually completely agree with you. And I think that's a really good point. Well made. Starting in a media res is a really awesome way of doing stuff. Um, I just think it's a bit too like a court reporter um, trying to be actually get the truth of it when what we need is a sense. Um, anyone else? Any other thoughts? Yeah. Um, so this might be it's, it's my two favourite bits. Um, but they kind of come in conflict with each other, and it might be raising a question which could be quite interesting. But I feel I feel anger and disfa- dis ugh. anger and disaffection raise a powerful first, and trade have never been so good. Is a great line that flies in the face of how defensive he is over his penny. Like, because it sounds like something. I mean, it could be really cool because it could be that this guy is like interested in being busy all the time and he wants to run around the city or something. But it sounds like someone who owns a lot of business and then we kind of learn that he maybe doesn't have a lot of money because he's very defensive over this penny. And I don't know, I don't know how those two things hold I, together. I thought Martin was supposed yes, to be thinking yeah. that. I think yeah. Joe is thinking this is what Martin thinks. Yes. Yeah. Oh, you, I didn't... Yeah, I... I, I um. So I do think that's true, but I think it's really difficult to follow that it's Martin because Joe is parroting Martin's thought before we switch to Hannah's um, point of view. And I think it's quite, I was confused about that. On my first two passes, I thought Joe was really pleased. And I was like, okay, I don't know why he is because he's not the business owner. It just means he's got more work. And then, yeah. And then later on when I read it through, I was like, oh, it's, oh, that's Martin. Okay, that makes sense. This guy is penny pinching and likes to get lots of money. But it's confusing. I agree. And I think that's why this would really benefit from being filtered through a third person limited perspective. Um, I'm going to move on if it's all right, unless anyone has got a burning thing they'd like to add. Um, I've got a third one here. Um, 
It was late in the evening and the rain poured down into the cramped streets of Whitechapel, feeding filthy streams that bubbled along the rutted pavements and turned the cobbles into slick, treacherous islands. Aside from the whitewashed tower of St. Mary uh, Matfelon, I'm really sorry, I, I, there's loads of words that I can't pronounce. That's not part of it, by the way, that was me saying Aside from the whitewashed tower of St. Mary uh, Matfelon, the ancient church that gave this seedy place its name, the district was crammed with dark and gloomy tenement buildings cloaked in soot and grime. The oppressive, claustrophobic atmosphere was barely penetrated by the sickly gas lamps that lurked on every corner. Everyone with honest business to attend to had sensibly decided that this was not the time to conduct it, leaving the night open for those with more nefarious agendas. A hunched-over figure made his way through the gloom, sheltered from the downpour by a battered top hat and oiled overcoat. He took a route that meandered up and down side streets, once or twice stepping into doorways to avoid the attention of the occasional pedestrian hurrying in the opposite direction. After a while, he turned off the main street and stalked down a narrow alley as fast as the slippery surfaces would allow. He came to an unkempt porch and took a moment underneath it, gradually getting his breath back and cursing quietly as he shook out the pools of water that had accumulated in the folds of his clothes. Looking around quickly to confirm he was unobserved, he rapped the door's knocker sharply. After an uncomfortably long pause, an eye-level slot slid back. A chink of light faintly illuminated a shadowy face. Password. The voice was deep and raspy. Elysium, came the wet figure's impatient retort. Come on, Ted. It's pissing down out here, he added, somewhat peevishly. You are denied entry, the voice intoned again in its portentous rasp. What? What are you playing at? I told you, it's Elysium. That was last week's, said the voice, in a rather less formal tone. You ain't getting in, I'm afraid, Billy, unless you got the new one. Right, so... Um, we a clear genre here. It was late in the evening and the rain poured down the cramped streets of Whitechapel. Great, cool. We are in a location. I feel completely comfortable. It's like slipping on an old, lovely coat of a genre and place. I'm like, I am really, I have some expectations about what this story is going to give me, but um, that flows very nicely. Feeding filthy streams that bubbled along the rutted pavements and turned the cobbles into slick, treacherous islands. So again, look, it is definitely in the place of classic. It's tropey. This is definitely in a kind of classic tone. Um, I think that's quite a cool image. There are no characters yet, but Whitechapel is becoming its own character in this bit thing. So I can kind of uh, give it a pass. I'm, I'm waiting. For, I'm kind of impatiently waiting for a character, but it's all right. You're saying this is, this is Penny Dreadfully Victoriana. I'm like, cool, okay, like I, I feel like I've, I'm being set up for some things here. Aside from the whitewashed tower of St. Mary, Matt fell on, I'm really sorry, does anyone know how to pronounce that name? Am I saying it right? Maybe not. Anyway, the ancient church that gave this seedy place its name? No. no, no, no I'd like, there's, you can be a tour guide, but if you're doing this kind of thing, the tour guide has to be going like the cabbie I had in London a few years back. He went, they call this place the Murder Mile. And I went... It was like 2 a.m., right? And he was driving me around Arsenal. And I said, I said, oh, and I, th I said, well, I, with I thought, incredible wit. Oh, oh really? Well, why is that? <laughs> and he, he like looked around at me in the cab, like disgusted. And he was like, because there's been a few too many murders. 
like, I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> like, it's like the ancient church that gave this seedy place its name. Don't call it this. this is the place supposed to be seedy? Oh, I thought you were saying it sounded quite quaint to me. Like, don't, there's, you know, don't over egg the pudding. The district was crammed with dark and gloomy tenement buildings cloaked in certain grime. Look, so dark and gloomy cloaked in certain grime. I'm actually totally happy with this. I feel like actually very content. It is tropey. It is tickling the edges of cliche, but it's cliches I really like. So like I know, like I know you say, well, cloaked in certain grime doesn't feel like it's very telling me anything very new. Um, I don't feel that either. But I feel like this is actually tropes being executed fairly competently. I'm, I'm like, okay, like I, this is going to be cosy and it's like a very genre-y and I, I like it. So I, I'd, I'd give it a pass. The oppressive, claustrophobic atmosphere. Pick one. It can be, it's not going to go the, the claustrophobic atmosphere. And I'm going to go, but was it oppressive? Or was it lovely and claustrophobic? Um, was barely penetrated. And in fact, I think that those are abstractions. It's like the, the dark evening, the cloying evening. We don't need to say atmosphere. You might as well say, you know, the, the stressful ambiance was, was barely penetrated by the sickly gas lamps that lurked on every corner. So I, like, I'm quite enjoying this. Like, it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of goofy, but it's lovely, right? Like, I, I like, we got, and we're hitting every single trope of stabby Victorian London, right? There's some gas, there's gas jets have gone up now. Everyone with honest business to attend to had sensibly decided that this was not the time to conduct it. Right, like I feel like I'm rat, like I feel like someone's telling me a yarn. I feel like someone's got their DM screen up and they're like telling me and they go, and you, and it's great, right? Leaving the night open for those with more nefarious agendas. <laughs> it's almost like they're, they're almost, it's, it's, all, it's getting almost... Nosferatu-esque. I like it. I like it. Vincent Price is delivering this. I'm having a riot here, right? A hunched over figure made his way through the gloom. This is like, it's like, I know that that's, and it's also, you know, it, I know that there's nothing so far is something that you haven't seen before, but I just think it is, it's hitting it so squarely in the middle of the bat that um, I think your heart would have to be made of stone if you like this kind of thing not to quite enjoy it. Sheltered from the downpour by a battered top hat. Of course he's wearing a top hat. Uh, and oiled overcoat. Oiled. Right, now that is a detail that someone who wasn't didn't actually care about this wouldn't include. They'd just say a shabby coat. But it's oiled. And that was the moment where I was like, okay. Okay, maybe you know a Susan about this. Maybe there's like, and, and it's just this thing that pulls me in where I'm like, I think you kind of know a bit about what you're talking about. This isn't entirely assembled from cliches. You at least love this genre enough to be familiar in this world. And I know that seems a weird hill to die on, oiled overcoat. You may say, we all know the oiled overcoat, famous oiled overcoats of Victorian London. I sort of do, but they, they wouldn't be on my... They, if I was playing Family Fortunes, or Family Feud if you are American, I, they wouldn't be on my ten things that I'd say. What do you associate with uh, Penny Dreadfuls? Oiled overcoat. <coughs> wouldn't come up in the top ten, right? It's cool. I, I like that a lot. He took a route that meandered up and down side streets, once or twice stepping into doorways to avoid the attention of the occasional pedestrian hurrying in the opposite direction. After a while, he turned off the main street and stalked down a narrow alley as fast as the slippery surfaces would allow. So we're getting, the sense is still happening, we're in the darkness. And, and then 
He came to an unkempt porch and took a moment underneath it, gradually getting his breath back and cursing quietly as he shook out the pools of water that accumulated in the folds of his clothes. I feel like like the cadence of this, it's like it's managing to pay off on what it is, right? Um, I like it. Looking around quickly to confirm he was unobserved, I think like the tone stays fairly regular as well. There's not any clangingly out of key voice things here. He rapped the door's knocker sharply. I don't think you need looking around quickly and sharply. I don't think you need those two adverbs. Pick one. Looking around to confirm he was unobserved, he rapped the door's knocker sharply. After an uncomfortably long pause, you don't need uncomfortably either, you can cut that. After a long pause, an eye-level slot slid back. Of course it did! Again, like paying off on these tropes and just like, yes, this is great. He's going to ask for a password. A chink of light faintly illuminated a shadowy face. Yes, it did. Password. The voice was deep and raspy. Like, again, this is, feels so gloriously in the tropes that I'm like, yeah. And also, that's a nicely simple piece of dialogue. Password. Um, uttered a sinister voice. Doesn't say that. It just says the voice was deep and rusty. That's a great dialogue tag by anyone's standards. Elysium. That's a great password as well. That's a surprising one. It's not just like Jack the Ripper or <laughs> Knife or The Queen. Like, right? it's like, it's not. It's like Elysium. That's interesting. That starts making me think of secret societies and just something. It's, just, it's a good line, right? Um, came the wet figure's impatient retort. A dialogue tag that in any other context apart from sort of like mild parody would be awful. Kind of, I think you get away with here. Come on, Ted, it's pissing down out here. He added somewhat peevishly. No, you do not get that second, right? I have been generous up to now. Um, he added somewhat peevishly. I, I know, because I just read the dialogue. You don't need... He added... I. If the reader has not understood that that piece of dialogue was added, you can't step in afterwards and go, by the way, he's adding that. Like, what, what, what information does that give me that I didn't have already? Somewhat peevishly. Come on, Ted, it's pissing down here. Oh, I was supposed to understand that that was peevish. I thought, I thought that was in sort of like ecstatic raptures. I've got to cut that, right? And I'm being particularly sarcastic about that because I've been so enjoying it up until now. You are denied entry. The voice intoned again in its portentous rasp. I don't think that the rasp is portentous. I don't think we need that piece of dialogue. You are denied entry. Just, just give a little bit of silence. What, what are you playing at? I told you it's Elysium. That was last week's, said the voice, in a rather less formal tone. I don't think I was imagining a formal tone. You can't say Elysium in a particularly formal, unform. You can't, just no. Like, that was last week's, said the voice. You ain't getting in, I'm afraid, Billy, unless you've got the new one. Right, so I, that's... A, and that, so we know this character's called Billy. There's a bit of conflict. There's a, a door. Now, look, it might seem that I'm, like, giving this, like, an easy pass. I really feel like I need to sort of step in and go, well, there's a... But it's morally bankrupt, or you know, something like that. But I, I really like that for what it is. Um, and that's not me ragging on it i think it, ha it, it it is within a genre and it works really well how long you can sustain a succession of tropes before the reader goes why am i here i don't know but i do know that knowing that billy is out there in the cold 
and the password's changed and he currently can't get in and he's been hiding from people, I'd be lying if I said I didn't want to know what's going on. I'd be, li- I'd be lying to you. Look, I want to be Mr. Litvick. I want to say I want to see sad middle-class couples going through a slow divorce with some good metaphors and big themes. And then at the end, there's a kind of set piece with some aporia where nothing really is resolved, but we sense a thematic lift. Um, but I, I'm up for this. You know, if you give me someone wanting to get in somewhere and not being allowed, and we don't know why, and my brain is just going, come on, tell me, why? Um, So those are my thoughts. Really good. There's a couple of bits of overwriting that I would just kill, but I think actually that's a pretty good opening bit. Um, Any thoughts? And you're, by the way, free to disagree with me if you like. Cool. In that case, can I just jump into, um, I've got a couple of questions that people are asking me and and then if we've got any time at the end, I'm going to try to finish by half eight, but if you want, we can run over by 10 minutes if no one's got anywhere to get to, or if you do, you can leave, but that's fine. Um, So I've got two questions that are actually really, really similar from different people. Obviously, it wasn't just the same person being rude, asking twice. So um, so one is, sometimes I get an idea for a really great structure for a short story stroke essay and get all excited about writing it. So sounds fine, right? What could possibly go wrong? Then I sit down. That's your first mistake. (laughs) What you do is just dream about writing and never try. And it all goes flat. This happens a lot. Any advice appreciated? Second one, how would you recommend creating a plot structure? Is it best to make it up as you go along or have everything set in store beforehand? So these are kind of coming at it from two different angles, right? There's one where it's like, I've got this shape in my head, this thing where someone's going to go from here to here to here and it's going to look beautiful. And it's kind of like this, I've got this like little graph of something and maybe you've got one or two set pieces, like an image of someone doing something and you don't know how it quite connects yet, but it's going to be great. And they're going to go through this and and that's going to be a plot shape. And then you sit down and just your efforts feel not up to the... Basically, you've got these beautiful butterflies flitting around and then you just take the horrible killing jar of your own ineptitude and and, and just bring it down over it and and watch as they all go and die. And then you go, oh no, I've killed my dreams. Why did I try? Why didn't I just imagine that would be a nice story to be written by somebody at some point? And what you've done is that's meeting reality and it's okay it's okay and the second one is like is it best to basically be a pantser or a plotter is it best to come up with a structure um and we've already seen how that can go wrong or is it best to just like jump into the story and go i don't know what's going to happen tra la la and just kind of like burst out and start right winging it and hoping just that you're not going to get like the tap on, on the shoulder from the bony finger and turn around and it's the grim reaper of your story has fallen apart at 15k um, going, I'm sorry, this, um, this story is crap and you have to stop writing it now. Uh, and you go, oh no, but I, I'm a writer. Look, I'm right. The words are coming out. And then a monkey with a gun came in. See, that's a twist. And you go, oh no. Um, so these are like the two things. Someone coming into it from going, I have got like on paper, like a cast iron plan for a story. 
And potentially on the other one saying, well, can I just wing it or do I have to have something down? What's the best way of going to it? And of course, there is no, I'm not going to entirely dodge this, but there is no best way. There is no way of approaching a story where at some stage you will not realise that your first draft is not as good as a finished novel. Unless you're a mutant, in which case I hate you and you shouldn't be in here. If you're like any other writer I have ever known, your first drafts will be bum. They will be not very good. There will be moments, there'll be flashes of genius, but I'll tell you what, those are the things that will absolutely kill you, right? Is the moments where occasionally you get a good line, a first line. You know what? The one that's going to be hardest to write is, is, is one where you've got a voice down already, right? Where you've got your first page is actually pretty good because then you get to writing a chapter and you lose the voice slightly and you go, oh no, I have to stop until I get that voice back. And it becomes this thing. I've been, I'm su like such a nerd. I've been speaking to about I've done about 50 interviews with different like neuroscientists, psychiatrists, um, therapists, uh, social and clinical psychologists, uh, spin talking to sports scientists, all these different things. And I've been talking about different things and some of them to do with writing. I've been speaking to people who examine writers' brains inside uh, fMRI machines, uh, looking at um, this guy called um, Adam Green, who um, zaps people's brains. He calls it brain zapping. It's technically... Uh, transcranial direct current stimulation, exogenous neurostimulation, zapping different parts of the brain to see if you can make someone more creative by passing an electrical current through it, right? Uh, and, you know, and, they, and this is like reasonably, the science is still young, um, but, you know, it's, it's certainly an area that lots of money is going into. And um, one area that I'm really, really interested in is um, overactive error response monitoring. And I think this is what happens when we start writing. This is kind of like perfectionism. This is one of the causes of anxiety is brain, you train your brain. And this is why I wanted to say all this I've been doing now, running through sentences going, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. If that is the voice in your head when you start writing, you are screwed. That's one of the reasons why NaNoWriMo can be for some people a little bit of a tonic. It's not a good way to write, but writing so fast that you cannot have time to criticise yourself is really, really, really useful because you cannot behaviourally behave. You cannot inhibit your way to good writing. So what happens is um, when people have overactive error response monitoring in their brains, you basically get really good at catching yourself making a mistake in a task. Um, what they've found is that that also means, and they study this through um, EEGs, so basically they, they're like measuring this kind of like general amplitude in the brain, it's called um, ERN, um, error-related negativity, and they, they, they see, er and, and basically people who are more self-critical, and this is early science, right, so you know, this may be found to be not true later on, generally have a, give a bigger response where, when they make an error in a task. So when you're writing, whether you have got this plan that you're holding in your head and a beautiful novel here and you're comparing it to what's coming out on the page and going, these are not the same. I am making an error. Stop, stop. And it like slam, your brain slams the production line closed and goes, stop, stop, stop. We're making a mistake. We're making a mistake. Let's stop writing. Figure out what the mistake is. It will restart the creative production line, start pumping out words again. Does this look right? Does this look right? And you start checking against your mental model again. Well, it turns out 
that that is a really, really, really bad way to do any task. It, it makes people better at reacting. It's quite good if you have to move a like one of those steady hand buzzers around a... People tend to do better at those kind of tasks where you have to watch out for a mistake and catch it. For any kind of creative task that involves divergent thinking, that involves you being expansive and thinking up multiple routes through a problem, be monitoring your work for errors, you've got a limited amount of cognitive processing power, right? And the more you start looking at possible problems, um, the less good you get at planning the less good you get at preparing for tasks in the future. Easier said than done, I know. But at some stage, with both of these things, the answer is you have to at some stage. I'm not, I'm not going to give the answer, you just have to get on with it. But you have to... You have to get it wrong before you get it right. There is no way through but writing a crap novel. Now... Because later on, you can go back in and do do all this process is a, is a later part of the process. They um they call it in the in the literature when they're studying what happens with people when they detect an error when they've got that heightened error response mon monitoring. It's a phasic dip in midbrain dopamine release whenever outcomes are worse than expected. So it's trace it, training. I think it's the dorsal anterior singular cortex in your brain so it's constantly saying don't make an error don't make an error don't make an error that is not conducive to enjoying writing and it is also makes you worse at writing as well that's the key, key thing because some of you will hear this if you're perfectionists like me and i'll say be kind to yourself i could say this right be kind to yourself write a bad first draft and allow it to be bad and you, you might go yeah yeah that's nice that's a nice thing to do tim if i if, if I was a good person, I would do that. But you don't understand I'm evil and stupid. And if I do that, I'm going to write the worst thing in the world. And it will open a hell gate and it will destroy all of Great Britain, right? And you, you, that's okay for other people, but I'm an idiot. And you and a little part of you believes, actually, by being hypervigilant, that you're secretly going... That's the only way you can make yourself write well. You're like, it would be lovely in a perfect world for me to be kind to myself, but you understand, like, I, I, I cannot be. And what I'm saying to you is everything across the board in every area of neuroscience, psychology, everything I've looked at suggests that that, 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 that error monitoring response just makes your writing across the board worse. You do not have the cognitive resources to write well. You can't be creative. You can't be original. You can't take risks. It strips everything away. It makes it almost impossible to write. Now, the caveat I would say is you go, well, if I just start writing and I don't have a plan, that isn't what I said, but like if you start writing and I go, okay, I'm just going to let it go wrong. Um, what if I re start to get the sense that maybe I've made a plot mistake and a character's gone one way when I think they should have gone the other way? Do I just keep going because that like one degree mistake is going to exaggerate over the course of the novel and I'm going to have two thirds of the novel where all the characters are in the wrong place, blah, 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 blah. So that's a really, really good point. And that's why it's not enough to just say, just get the first draft written. That's what so many novelists say. Just get the first draft written. Oh, thanks. No shit. I know. Like everyone says it. Do you think I'm just sitting here going, oh, I just need you to say those words and now I can do it. So one of the keys is I've said that like your tactic for inhibiting your way to finishing the novel um, it doesn't work. It, it cannot work, right? So, so that's one way to let it go. The, the other one is to say you can just jump forward and 
write multiple realities of the, the of the story. So if you get to a certain point in the story and you start getting this like feeling like I'm in the wrong timeline, you know, you start feeling like they, there was a split in realities and I'm in B universe and what's going on with these characters? This character shouldn't be here. This all feels wrong and it starts feeling like wading through treacle. If you get a sense there's a point you can track back to where a character should have done something else, what you can do is just continue writing from the point you're at as if you had made those changes um, and see what happens in the story now. So you can go, okay, so assuming this person here didn't tell him to naff off and they both went together or they investigated this earlier or he did go back to visit his dad before his dad died or whatever, you can do that and just test it out. Because sometimes when you were having this feeling of like, I've gone wrong, you were just really tired. And you write, you write the other version and you go, oh, this is crap. And then you look back at your original version, you go, oh, no, it's fine. Oh, no, I just went mental briefly. And, and that's fine. And sometimes you write the new version and suddenly it is singing and you felt like you couldn't write anymore and you knock out 2,000 words in a morning and you go, oh, my God. Oh, like I, oh, actually, that feeling of like, and angst and stuff was me having critical discernment, was me doing the work of being a writer, was me noticing problems and reacting to them great I'm, I'm not I don't think I don't look upon my work gaze upon it and think it's always perfect because I have critical judgment because I'm a writer because I'm great right you can do it that way around so my answer to I think I've kind of gone I think I've kind of answered that is if you get stuck or it feels flat that's a first draft right you can certainly jump to the most interesting bits so you're not always starting at the beginning because you're not qualified to write the first paragraph of your novel um, so you can you don't have to begin at the beginning, but also you just need. I almost always, when I'm writing a short story, will write one version of it. It's absolutely pants, and then I start again in a completely different place, and the second one works. I there's almost always just like a kind of I almost have to like cough up a, like a story hairball. And I think I always think this was a bad story idea. Oh, what have I done? I'm such an idiot. And then I kind of stop. And then it's almost like I have to grieve the loss of that like first run at it. Why should you always get stuff right first time? Is that because you think that's what writers do? No, they don't. They just don't tell you. Because why? Because we don't share all our stuff all the time. And this is why it's really good to have a community and talk to other writers. Because then you realise. And it doesn't have to be painful. That bit I added where I'm going, oh, I'm so bad at writing, this is rubbish. That's not in any way helpful to the process at all. It doesn't aid it. That can all be thrown out. But the thing of getting to a point and going, I'm not sure this is working. I'm going to try a different angle. That can be really good fun. Like, that doesn't have to involve any self-criticism at all. And you can just have that moment of discernment and realisation and do that. So have multiple runs at something, especially if you're prepared to go, well, I'm just going to give... like A, a, a first and second draft don't have to be of recognizably the same story um, and accept that your plot for something it's fine to have a model just accept that you're not qualified to write to create the model of that story until you've met the characters written it and actually checked down on the ground whether the stuff you've imagined characters doing makes sense when you're in that room seeing stuff smelling stuff hearing stuff because often there'll be a much more obvious emotionally true response and if you don't let the characters do that 
you know, because I read, oh my God, I read big, like epic fantasy novels and stuff written by people who clearly planned it beforehand, have got like an idea for their 10 book series and a character would go, he could, he could run away right now and never have to look back. But no, the gods might catch him. It's like, how? And he couldn't take that risk. And besides, he was tired. And maybe tomorrow would be a good day. And you're like, come on. This isn't a compelling plot. The man who, when it came down to it, couldn't really be bothered. Like, it's like epic, right? But you could, that is the author going, shit. Actually, he could just walk on. Why is he staying here? I'd better have him think that he just has to because he wants to go back for his second favorite hat like it's it's dumb and like sometimes it can throw you into a panic if you are married to your plot uh, like idea but if your plot idea is just a kind of like anchor point and especially if you've got a couple of key scenes which you can go ahead and write first if you like um or like just like little touchstones that keep you going it can be really useful but you'll often get to the end and go i didn't don't want to do that i've come up with a better idea well well done you're pushing yourself and you're being brilliant and you're coming up with new stuff in light of new evidence. That is creative writing. Um, I think that sort of answers those questions. I was just wondering before we sort of finish, has anyone else got, I've probably got time for one more question if anyone's got anything else. Yes. Have you got any advice on writing sex scenes? Have I got any r- advice on writing sex scenes? Well, I am... Um, um, so, like, the very, very, very honest answer would be that is not my um, forte. I'm extremely... Im- I, I get really shy and embarrassed about writing them. Um, I just had my first go at writing I th- what I think is kind of like a, a moment, like a sexual farce scene where a character is... Um, you know, like a kind of like French farce style thing where a character comes into a room, there's another character behind a screen who isn't the person he thinks they are, who's actually breaking into the building, who then pretends to be the person he thinks they, they are, um, who then gets him to undress and stand in the corner of the room with his eyes closed so they can sneak out. Um, I quite enjoyed that. That was about the closest I've come to... Um, to um, the uh, unmentionable act. Um, but so my, my basic thoughts about it, um, and I'm just going to like treat this with the kind of like oven gloves of general ways that scenes work, are um, that they can have like multiple um, functions and it kind of depends on what kind of genre you're writing in. Like I think a lot of like literary fiction wants to make sex scenes like awkward and sad because they can't, they can't, you can't think that it could be pornographic or readers could quite enjoy it or characters could like sex. So it's always either really weird metaphors or someone, or, or they're, they're like geese or like uh, something, or, or, or it reminds them of death or, or the, it, the sex is somehow unsatisfying and we're supposed to, like, un- because otherwise people get worried that you're going to think that the author is actually just describing their own sex life, right? So they make it kind of weird or odd or something like that. So, I mean, like, I think, like any scene, it has to have, uh, it's, it's some, often good if it has a point and it has a beginning, middle and end. I realise in sex that that often has an obvious end point, but um, that it feels that there's like some kind of conflict and dynamic, not necessarily a power dynamic, but some kind of interplay between the characters, some kind of way that they're relating to each other. Um, 
it's normally best for it to be third person limited or first person limited rather than you could I mean actually I'm sure there are brilliant omniscient narrating narrated sex scenes actually I'm sure you could do a really brilliant um, back and forth between however many participants there are um, but I think the perilous area is simile and metaphor right like describing stuff uh, by like basically as if you think sex is a bit too icky to actually talk about genitals or how people are touching each other and we start using um, similes and metaphors it was oh I, I don't even want to go into some of the like things I've heard like metaphors but I think something that can be used really well you can definitely have things that are ha- in the environment that you're using as a proxy for some of the feelings like is it really important when you're building up to it that you if you want it to be actually sensual that you don't have like lots of gross metaphors or whatever you want things to be pulling in the same direction a bit like in that first piece where there were like verb choices stuff taken from a lexical set that all implied like blood and death like you can have environmental things or um verbs or nouns in the lead up to the scene that I I actually almost feel like the, the scene before is as important as the scene because it kind of sets, kind of gets the reader's juices going a little bit and it kind of sets us up for it. And that's where you can have some of these things sort of implied and you can build up a bit of tension. But like any good scene, um, something has to be different at the end of it than it is at the beginning. I don't actually have any problem with a scene with just two characters shagging. Like, we can have that, and that can be really nice, and it can be about a bond between two characters. It can be just because we enjoy watching them. Um, that's fine. But I think, generally, in a story, it, 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 it's, it's good if those moments where you choose to actually show us the whole thing, they're discovering something. One is discovering something about the other, like maybe the, you know some boundary they're, that they're experiencing, some new level of intimacy. They're doing it somewhere in a way that, or, or it's the first time. I mean, like if it is the first time two characters have got together and done it, like that intrinsically has a moment of like the dynamic between them is changing. Things afterwards aren't going to be the same. Um, but I think you also have to work out why you're showing us the individual bits. Mm-hmm. In the same way that, like, why would you show us a character describe, like, blow by blow a character, like, putting on their coat, making some scones or doing a poo? And there might be lots of good reasons why you'd do that. But I think the same applies with the sex scene. I don't wish to imply anything about my own uh, love life by those three examples I gave. i <laughs> not within those territories at all. But um, just that I think it's important that you're working out why we're doing it. Now, I'm I'm like, but I would say also, I'm not a great person to ask about this because I'm particularly squeamish about it. I tend to just fade to the fluttering of the uh, lace curtains whenever I have possible sex scenes. You know, I like build up to it. And then I have lots of fight scenes that are very obviously a proxy for sex scenes. Like a very use sort of like porny like, characters who obviously want to get off and I, instead of like fighting each other with their big thrusting swords like so I think you can also do really interesting things with scenes that are obviously a proxy for sex as well and they can actually often be um not necessarily more erotic but they can definitely be more tension laden um I'm not saying you have to have someone 
<laughs> you know, you, if you take it too far, then it gets a bit kazoo, kind of like you you can't have you can't have you can't have somebody just like playing cricket in a really pawny way, just like rubbing rubbing the the, the bat and going, fuck! I really want to hit your ball. Like you, it can be silly, of course. But I think you can do all sorts of stuff to make scenes that aren't sex scenes incredibly sexy and incredibly sort of pregnant with tension and kind of dripping with the interplay with two characters. Um, I think a really well done sex scene is, is one of the hardest things to do with literature and we're actually quite quick to mock them. Out of context, actually, I, I'm not a big fan of like the bad sex award because it often takes scenes out of context and then goes, oh, look at this stupid sex scene. I mean, like, Morrissey's ones were awful, and they were in the context of a dreadful um, self-indulgent novel. But actually, a lot of the time, the scene is supposed to be funny, and then they take it out and go, this is not a very, very sexy scene. This almost seems a bit ridiculous. And it's like, yeah, that was the point of the scene, you nerk. Like, that's what it was written for, you absolute prat. I think we're very quick to shame people for making mistakes um, or perceived mistakes in sex scenes. And it's a real shame because, like, society's got enough, like, hang-ups and shamings about sex and what people enjoy anyway without us adding this additional layer of, like, oh, that's probably like you in bed every time someone tries to write one. And I think, actually, we could all be much more supportive about... I'm going on my soapbox here because I feel more comfortable than talking actually about how to do sex scenes. Um, But I I, I think when they're done really well, they can be awesome and they're... um, Literary fiction's got a bit of a bee in its bonnet about admitting that adults enjoy sex. Every sex scene has to be like a... I, at best, it is like a tragic farewell. <laughs> like Most of the time, it's like... It is a reflection of like middle-class ennui. Maybe just middle-class people have bad sex. I don't know. Um, but I'm, yeah, the answer is I feel like something has to change between the beginning and the end, some dynamic between the characters has to shift. Someone has to learn something. Um, uh, and yeah, that, that would be my overall thoughts. But it, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to say that I'm not a uh, expert on that. And it's something I'd like to get better at. Um, I think that is it. Um, I just want to say thank you to everyone for coming, really. It's been really nice to uh chat to you and kind of gabble manically if you've got any questions that you want to ask me afterwards while i'm sort of clearing up i'd love to say hello and just um meet you really and um thank you very much everyone for coming and i hope you have a lovely week of writing (laughs) 